Hey everybody, it's your boy, Dr. Mark Liss, coming at you with another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. Before we get started, we're hitting up the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox for today's joke. Um, today's joke was from a listener, uh, Amy. Thank you for uh, giving us a, a joke for the day. A, a while back, I had talked about how I was going to do um, animal jokes, right? Or animal animal facts. And yes, that was just a really not very clever way of introducing animal jokes into the podcast. I did it for a couple weeks and then... Uh, didn't have enough animal jokes, so I abandoned the topic uh, and went on to a different subject. Um, that being said, we uh, today are we, we had a, a viewer or a listener, um, Amy, uh, who sent us a joke, and it was about penguins. But I gotta say, Amy, that joke was really inappropriate for this podcast. I, I cannot read that joke about penguins on the podcast because you know what? It will not fly. That was horrible. I'm so sorry. Everyone, let's start the podcast. The primary Care Podcast is written and by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students, interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients. You should not be using medical advice. This is also a personal podcast. Produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's your boy, Dr. Mark Liss. Welcome back to the pod, uh, pod girls, pod boys, pod people, to your favorite medical primary care podcast, uh, trying to keep things under 15 minutes long. Um, we today are talking about two separate, very, very short topics. Um, if I can't squeeze them all into one podcast, I'm not going to go back and edit this out and make it into one. Uh, I'll just give you a twofer and we'll release two in the same week. I think that'll be fun. Uh, I never do that anymore. Um, but the first topic that we have today is a new study about PPIs and newborns, giving PPIs to children um, and, and newborns, um, infants, under the age of two. Now, this has a lot of historical relevancy because when I was in medical school, uh, a lot of children were being prescribed PPIs, and I was in medical school um, in on my rotations, and I would watch um, I would watch drug reps come into the clinic and talk about um, you know pediatric you know in, in neonates for for refluxy for spitty kids uh, using PPIs um, and, and selling PPIs and, and, and newborns. And we now know um, several randomized trials and systematic reviews are that PPIs are not valuable in infants with just irritability and regurgitation, right? So, you know, majority of kids are spitty. Um, a majority of kids have reflux. There's lots of non-pharmacological things that you can do to help that. That's a topic for a different day. But at the same point, a lot of that is just you know, normal physiology in a lot of these kids. And then you have to work with parents, make sure the kids are still gaining weight and that the kid is not, uh, you know, drastically losing weight or failing to gain weight. They're not in failure to thrive mode. Um, and really PPIs and other acid-suppressing agents are really only appropriate for the infantile group with severe esophagitis, you know, on endoscopic biopsies. So somebody who's already seen pediatric gastroenterology, they've done some of this workup and, you know, they have such severe GERD, um, which is incredibly rare, but those cases are out there and, and probably have some benefit, okay? So we're not talking about that, but uh, you know, even uh, my partner the other day came back and you know, uh, two of my partners were talking about this case of this patient uh, and this mom who brought this kid in for all this reflux and was just convinced that this kid needed medications. I mean, just 
like almost pathologically convinced that her child needed medications for the child's reflux. And again, child gaining weight appropriately, developing normally, everything fine. Uh, not a good candidate for PPI. And both providers talking about how like they were trying to talk mom off this ledge. So another uh, another uh, ammo in the arsenal, right? A lot of these parents think, um, oh, this will fix this reflux and my kid will stop spinning up all the time and they'll stop being so fussy and irritable around mealtimes. Um, and, you know, yada, 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 uh, you know, not having to change dietary stuff and mom, then we can, you know, kid will be better. And when we talk about this study, this study just came out in Journal of Pediatrics, JAMA Pediatrics, okay? Um, and this was on February 8th. Wait, nope, just kidding. Uh, yep, February 8th, 2021. Yep, not, not kidding. It was February 8th, 2021. Um, and this was association between PPI use and risk of asthma in children. Okay, and this was a uh, registry data study, right? So looking at uh, this registry data in Sweden, and they looked at the last decade. Okay, so basically January 2007 to December 2016. And during this time period, there was a, uh, worldwide, there was an increased use of PPIs during the swing. We had many, many children who were put on PPIs again for reflux. Uh, like I said, in my own experience, that's why this, this study reminded me of my own experience in medical school. And in this study, Children and adolescents that were 17 or under were then matched age appropriately, propensity scoring, yada, 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 into pairs, initiated PPIs, and those did not, blah, 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 blah. So they looked at kids that had PPIs versus kids that did not have PPIs. And then they looked in the future to see which kids developed asthma, okay? And, uh, you know, based on this is all EMR data, this is registry stuff. And, you know, a lot of the European uh, trials, a lot now are going to these registry data, data sets because they're very easy to do. Now, this is not a randomized control trial. This is not a super high, high quality evidence study, but there, this is a really good data point, at least for a discussion to have with parents. And what did this find, right? So it found that for all infants and toddlers, there was an increase rate of asthma in all kids treated with PPIs, not all kids, but a hazard ratio of 1.83, right? So not quite double, right? But 1.83. So a significant bump in the cases of asthma on kids with PPIs and kids that are not on PPIs. And it, it they, they looked at every individual PPI. So esomeprazole, again, a hazard ratio of 1.6, uh, lansoprazole, 1.4, and pantoprazole, 2.33, holy buckets. Uh, and that confidence interval is massive though, 1.3 to 4.1. So uh, not sure what to make about the fact that it was so much worse than the other two. So when there wasn't really a clear um, time indication or time correlation, the hazard ratios about when the asthma was diagnosed compared to when the PPI was initiated, all over the board from in the first three months till the end of the study period, right? But a significant association between PPI use in infants and children and then further on the line developing asthma. So again, very, very, very important um, that we have this discussion, right, with parents that not only are PPIs not recommended because they don't seem to do much, but it's not recommended also because it's seemingly also potentially very harmful. And I think that is that is something that, again, adds another bullet to your arsenal about trying to talk parents um, out of using PPIs and kids. And this, and by the way, I, I totally, totally whiffed when I was describing the study. This was in kids starting on PPIs under the age of two, right? But again, huge data set, uh, huge data set. This was 80,000 patients that were, they were looking at. Um, it was not a randomized controlled trial. So it is a, a, a fairly weak data point, 
But again, a very important data point to have that conversation. So I think a very useful study, again, to talk par parents out of PPI use unless unless kid is struggling, unless kid has failure to thrive, unless kid has severe, severe, severe GERD. Um, again, one more reason not to use it. All right, so we got done with that one on time. Uh, wow, shocker, I didn't talk for an entire 15-minute session. But uh, we are moving on to my second study. And this, look, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the results up front, um, and you can stop listening if, you're, if, if you don't want to hear what I have to say about this trial. But this is one of my favorite trials I've read in a long time, okay? It's an N of 1 trial, which means it's an individual trial, okay? And, and the trial was on statin treatment and muscle symptoms, okay? So it's a randomized placebo-controlled N of 1 trial. This was in BMJ last month, February 24th. So literally this last week before I'm recording this podcast. So what is this? The, the question is, do statins cause muscle symptom side effects? And, and the answer is yes, right? I mean, we have enough data to now say, yes, people will get myalgias very commonly. But then the question is, how many people get muscle-related symptoms regarding actual statins compared to just Look, when not to generalize old people, I'm sorry, old people, I'm sorry, old pod girls and pod boys listening to this podcast, old people have muscle pain. I am 36 years old, and I get muscle aches on a day-to-day -day basis at the time. It depends on what I've been doing recently, right? So um, not to generalize or to, to point fingers, but a lot of people then, you know, they hear, oh, if you get on the statin, you're going to have more muscle aches. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We've all had this. And why does this matter? Because statins are such good drugs. I mean, they suck in terms of side effects and how people hate them and how they don't like taking them and how the potential side effects they have and yada, yada, yada. But one thing we hear all the time is, oh, I'm so achy. Oh, I have so much pain. And so I tell people, oh, if you're really that miserable, stop, try stopping to taking it for a couple of days. See if you feel better. If you do, great. Stay off for longer. If it makes a big difference, wonderful. Maybe we'll try to switch satins, yada, yada. And, and again, work with the individual patient to try to get them comfortable with the medicine they're taking. You know, even if it's the you know, placebo effect or the drug effect causing placebo-like symptoms because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, I'm going to take this pill and I'm going to get these side effects, and so therefore I got the side effects. Again, there's still value in listening to the patient, hearing them out, working with them to, again, try to wash out all the symptoms, make them feel better, and then jump into a different drug, a slower dose, yada, 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 and then try to slowly get them back to where they need to be, right? And there are some people that just, you know, they say they can't tolerate it, and so then we oftentimes can't, can't tolerate them. And that's too bad because it could work for a lot of people. As we know, statins are pretty effective drugs. So this study, it's an N of 1 study, right? So what is an N of 1 study, right? So an N of 1 trial is a randomized trial of an individual patient, right? N equals one, okay? And after the individual randomization of that trial, okay, all of the results are then collected and then they're combined into analysis and then it's used to, assess, uh, used to assess the overall effect. So what does this mean? So they recruited about 200 patients in the United Kingdom, uh, again, great study, uh, who were either, they couldn't tolerate statins in the past or they were considering stopping statins because of muscle symptom issues, okay? And so, again, what they did was they took all these patients and they said, what we're going to do for you is we're going to give you pills every month, okay? And for two months in a row, you're going to either get a Torvastatin 20 milligrams or placebo, okay? You're not going to go know what you're going to get, and again, to the individual patient. And you're going to get one of these two-month stretches, okay? You're going to get this two-month stretch, and we're going to switch to the other one, or we might keep you on the same one for two months. But over the course of a year, six months are going to be on statins and six months are going to be on placebo. You don't know which is which. You might have periods where you have, you might have patients individually that get randomized to six straight months of statins and six straight months of placebo. 
uh, vice versa, or, or it could be two months and then two months and then two months and two months and two months uh, on off, on off, on off, on off. But the patient individually won't know. And the reason why the end of ones are nice is because then they have the opportunity to see the individual data, and and during and during the trial, they you know each of during each of these weeks, basically they were asked for their symptom scores, to rate their symptoms, how much muscle aches they were having, muscle pain they were having, um, and of the 200, only 150 actually uh, stayed with the trial, and of the 150, um, people then dropped out during the trial because of terrible muscle aches and and, and et cetera, right? Um, and so the data, the reason I'm showing, the, the reason I'm talking about this study is because the, da- the data, the, the results that there was no effect um, on a torvastatin 20 milligrams on muscle symptoms compared to placebo months, okay? No difference, right? So during the um, statin months uh, versus the placebo periods, there was a difference in a 10, on a 10-point scale of 0.11 uh, with a confidence interval that did cross zero and the p-value was 0.4, Okay. And of those people that couldn't tolerate the drug, right, during it, 18%, or sorry, 18 participants withdrew during muscle symptoms during their statin period. But 13 people withdrew from the trial due to their muscle symptoms because they were on a placebo. Again, like, I mean, and, and that number is not statistically significant, right? So 9% of patients in the statin arm versus 7% in the placebo arm um, withdrew. And again, this gets back to what we see in real life. There are just some people that just taking it makes them feel like they have these symptoms. It's probably not from the statin. It's probably just coincidence that they're having these muscle aches and pains, yada, yada, yada. And yet it causes us to you know, continuously reevaluate our statin. Now, the nice thing about this N of 1 is that after the end of the trial, they looked at the data and they showed people their, their symptoms and they showed them what their symptoms were based on what segment of the window they were on, whether they were on a statin, whether they were on placebo, and what they scored. And patients, two-thirds of the patients, and these were all patients who either had discontinued statins or were considering stopping statins just because of their muscle symptoms, two-thirds of these patients then committed to being on a statin you know, after that because they, they saw that their symptoms weren't related to their medication, that they weren't related to placebo, uh, that it could have been placebo for their symptoms, and it had no correlation to what medicine they were taking. And so again, you then got, of these patients, two thirds of them were willing to then take the statin, commit to the statin. That's a fantastic trial. This is one of the best design trials I've read in years. And I'd love to do this with my own patients. I just wanna be able to say, okay, give me your statins, and then we're gonna also give you some placebos. And we're gonna mix them. You're never gonna know which batch you're gonna get. We're gonna send them to you for a month, have the pharmacy send them to you for a month, and do this trial on my own patients just because I think some people would really benefit from being on a statin. But again, whether it's, they're convinced in their own head or they're convinced that they're having, and they are having real muscle aches, but again, probably not related to the statins. So again, great trial, great design. This is not me saying statins don't cause muscle pain because they do. Uh, there's enough data that, but, but again, true statin myalgias, true statin, uh, true statin-induced pain is pretty rare. Right, compared to the number of people who on a statin in the studies report muscle aches and pains. So I'm not, I'm not saying those symptoms aren't real in some patients. I'm not saying that there aren't those rare cases. I, I'm also not saying that people don't have real symptoms when they start taking a torvastatin. Again, self-fulfilling prophecy. I've heard statins are gonna cause muscle pain. Oh, look, I have the muscle pain too. Um, so I'm not saying that these aren't real muscle aches and pains. The brain's a very, very powerful organ. But again, a great trial that to the appropriate patient you could have this conversation with. And again, 
intellectually as providers knowing, okay, we're not harming most of these patients who complain of, you know, joints, aches, and pains with statins. Let's work with them to try to find a way to keep them on the statin if they are appropriate um, for the patient, which again, for a lot of people, statins are miserable because they're, you know, patients hate them. Um, but man, they are really good statistically for many, many, many studies. So um, that's it. Two, 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 two for the price of one today. How about that? You um, got double the dose of Dr. List. From that, I'm, we're going to have to take like a month off. Um, you guys are going to be way overwhelmed. Too much, too much Dr. List is too much. Um, again, I, I thanks for listening. Um, I, I really enjoy doing these. And these these were two studies that I read this week that I was just like, these are great studies. I got to talk about them. Got to put them out. Um, please let me know if you have any feedback, any appropriate jokes, Amy, Amy, um, appropriate. Um, anyways, uh, get back to me at primarycarepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're growing really rapidly. Uh, you know, we haven't advertised the pod even locally here within uh, Animal Medical Group. We, we, haven't, we haven't really advertised at all. We haven't pushed it out. And yet we're growing internationally. We're growing um, uh, significantly. So I, I'm really happy to see that um, and, and really happy that people are uh, that like listening to it. So, again, thanks for listening. You remember, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Uh, have a great week. Thanks. God bless.